We are in the book of Genesis for the last Sunday here, um, Genesis 4, 1 through 24. Stories are exceptionally important because stories have the power to shape our understanding of ourselves and of everything else that we see and do. Perhaps the most important question that anybody can ask in their life, whether or not you're a Christian or not a Christian, is the question, uh, what story are you living under? What story are you living by? And what we've been trying to do in this series of sermons since we started at the beginning of the year is trace out the single storyline of the Bible. This is the story that God desires for us uh, to live in. Uh, And the the shape of the story, the, the narrative framework, is what's written there in the column of the passage, Creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. And today we are at the very bottom of the story. We see in the starkest detail yet, what's wrong with this world? And the Bible has a very simple answer to that question. What's wrong with the world? Sin is wrong with the world. What does this world need to be rescued from? Well, it needs to be rescued from us. (laughs) Let's read it. Genesis 4.1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought forth some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of the flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you, ang- why are you angry? Why, why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I do not know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crop for you. You will be, I mean, in essence, like Adam and Eve who were pressed out of the garden. You will be a wanderer. You will no longer have a home. You will be a restless wanderer on earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son 
Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahushael. Mahushael was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech was the uh, the first polygamist. And one of the subtexts, one of the sub-themes as you read through the rest of the Old Testament is uh, polygamy is an absolute disaster. It's, it's, it's oppressive to women. It destroys marriages and families. It's a complete disaster. And I guess we shouldn't be so surprised because we see that this man is himself, he's a disaster. He married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and, and uh, raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. We, um, we might have expected Moses to say nothing complimentary about the descendants of Cain. Why, why, would, why would you say anything complimentary about these people? But even sinful mankind produces culture. Um, human beings, you've watched the videos before, human, the human beings are awesome videos. You've got the guy on the skateboard and he does a, a 360 barrel roll. Human beings, we are awesome. We're, we're also terrible. <laughs> uh, we're terribly awesome. We, we build cities, as is written here. We create music. We engage in metallurgy, which, of course, requires mining and extracting ore and working with finished metal. We, um, what, this is what theologians call common grace, the ability of even sinful people to create uh, wonderful aspects of cultural, uh, cultural development. Um, you know, look what humanity has, even sinful humanity has done And then look what humanity has become. Verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Oh, what a place this is. Man, the echo is crazy in this room. <laughs> is it as bad out there as it is up here? It's bad. Um, normally, we meet, if you're visiting All Saints for the first time, we meet in the auxiliary gymnasium. They're setting up for a fifth and junior high school play right now. And so we'll be in here this Sunday and the week after. So uh, you know, thank you for your indulgence. John Steinbeck thought that East of Eden was the very best book that he had ever read. How many of you have have read East of Eden before? It's a masterpiece. It follows a story of a highly dysfunctional family. The father's name is Adam. The son's names are Aaron and Charles. No, sorry, Aaron and Caleb. Um, Notice the A and the B, uh, Cain and Abel. Aaron is the good-natured boy everybody likes. Everything comes easy to Aaron. Uh, He's the loved and favored one of his father, Adam. And he ends up pursuing the priesthood. He becomes an Episcopalian priest. Caleb, on the other hand, is a tortured soul. He's the boy who can do nothing right. He's not loved by his father. He's not accepted by his father. 
And near the end of the book, unsurprisingly, he takes vengeance upon his brother. He doesn't kill him directly, but he does kill him indirectly. One of the characters, Lee, I think he's a cook in the story. I, I think he speaks at one point on behalf of Steinbeck. At least I think this is Steinbeck speaking through him. Quote, The greatest terror a child can have is that he is not loved, and rejection is the hell he fears. The greatest terror a child can have is that he's not loved, and rejection is the hell he fears. I think everyone in the world, to a large or small extent, has felt rejection, he goes on, and with rejection comes anger, and with anger, some kind of crime and revenge for the rejection, and with the crime, guilt. And there, he writes, there is the story of mankind. Rejection, anger, sibling rivalry, violence. Notice here in Genesis 4 what precipitates the story of mankind. In Genesis 4, we have recorded what I think is the very first act of worship in the Bible. You could say it's the very first Sunday morning in the Bible, or in their case, it was probably a Saturday morning. But in this, in this instance, God accepts one man's worship and he rejects another man's worship. You know, most people's idea of God is that all God cares is, um, is if you, if you give any kind of worship whatsoever. I mean, the idea that God would accept some worship and reject another is definitely not the way that most people think, think of God, um, today. But, he, but it, re, it repeats itself again and again. God rejects some worship and accepts some. Why? Why is one sacrifice acceptable to God and the other is not? Many people over the years have said that the answer is obvious. It's obvious. Abel offered a blood sacrifice. If you look later on in the Mosaic Law, you see that blood sacrifice is necessary to atone for sin. Sin cannot be uh, dealt with without the sacrifice of the shed blood of an animal. Cain, they say, only brought a grain offering, which makes his sacrifice inferior because he doesn't deal with human sin. But what this explanation fails to take into account of is the fact that this is not a, it's not a sin offering that is being offered. The word here that's used is, um, is much more akin to a dedication offering. They're not coming and asking God to forgive them of their sins. They're likely dedicating their lives to him. And in a dedication offering, you just brought whatever you had. If you were a, a farmer, as, as Cain was, you, you brought the, the crops, the, had been produced. If you're a rancher, as Abel was, I got, uh, then you, you brought your, your animals. You take a portion of your possessions, you build an altar, and you sacrifice atop the altar the portion you desire to give away as an expression of your, of your devotion and your gratitude to God. So that's not, I don't think it's, it's not a blood versus grain sacrifice. That's not the issue. There's a hint of the real reason found in verses 3 and 4, if you want to read it with me here. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the, uh, 
from some of the firstborn of his flock. He brought the choicest of the firstlings of his flock and the tastiest parts of the meat. So what is the difference between the two sacrifices? Simply put, one is costly. One is risky. Cain makes a gesture of thanks. He throws a tip on the table. He does the required amount. Abel gives the very best part of his breeding stock. He gives, he gives his best, to put it tritely. Um, he, he gives his future. He gives, he gives in such a way that risks something for him. He risks his future with this sacrifice. And presumably he did it because, well, because of his heart. I mean, we do everything as an overflow of our hearts. Jeffrey O'Brien graduated from Ambrose last May. He graduated with my daughter, uh, Hannah, not Aaron, my wife, Aaron. <laughs> Sorry, honey. My daughter, Hannah, they, they were in the class together. Um, he was down in Southern California attending Calvary Chapel Bible College when on Valentine's Day, he um, fr- freak motorcycle accident, and he, he was killed um, Some of the friends of the O'Briens set up a GoFundMe page in order to help uh, pay for the uh, expenses for the funeral, which was held yesterday. And then uh, one of them posted an excerpt from one of Jeffrey's journal entries. Apparently, um, he he had a journal. He kept a journal, which is a great spiritual discipline, by the way, keeping a journal. You're really able to see kind of what's going on, where you have been, where you are at. This is uh, the picture that's on the GoFundMe page, and it's just written in his very male uh, script in, in his hand. At the top of the page, it asks, who do I want to be? Who do I want to be? A man after God's own heart. A man who refuses to wound his family for selfish gain. A man who walks in purity and trusts God for all he is. A man who walks in true humility and derives great confidence from his heavenly father. That was a journal entry of an 18-year-old young man who died weeks ago. I think one of the reasons God gives extraordinary Faith and devotion to uh, younger Christians like that is to shake us older ones up. To rattle our cage and shake us out of our complacency. To wake us up from our lethargy. Um, I, I was cut to the core when I read that. I was so inspired, and at the same time, I was so convicted. Here's, a, here's an 18-year-old guy, and he, he puts me to shame. He puts my heart to shame. He puts, I would dare say, most of the men in, the, in this room to shame with that kind of heart. And it reminded me a quote uh, I've used before with you. Uh, Ray Ortland's dad, a longtime pastor, his son was a pastor, pastor of a big church in Nashville. He, he said, you know, half-hearted, half-hearted Christians 
Half-hearted Christians, he says, are the most miserable people alive because they are, they know how to be guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with God to be truly joyful, <laughs> to be truly happy. And he is so right. Half-hearted Christianity is a drag. It's an absolute drag because you show up and you, you, you go through the motions. You're here. You, you make a sacrifice. You bring an offering. But there's, there's no, there's, there's not the freeness of, that I just described to you in that, that journal article. The freeness of giving yourself away in love to another person. Um, like God is just not very real to you. God's not real to you. I don't think, honestly, I don't think God was very real to Cain. Um, I said this too before, that if God Almighty stood in front of us this morning and you saw him in all of his glory, if, if I sat down and he stood up and you could see him with your two eyes uh, and his glory was revealed, we wouldn't offer him a few half-heartedly sung hymns, mutter a few half-awake prayers, and make a few promises we really didn't intend to keep and then run home to make it for kickoff. Um, if we could see God, if we could see God, we would never dishonor him in that way. But the problem is that we can't. Um, some of us can't. He's not that real to us. And it is hard to give yourself away that freely to a person who is not real to you. It is really hard to, to say, I dedicate everything that I am and have to something that is just an idea. That's not a person. A person with a heartbeat. And so I think we, we do need to pray that God would give us eyes to see him and a whole heart to love him. That he would increase our spiritual perception of him. Cain was faced with a dilemma, wasn't he? When God pronounced Abel and his offering better, Cain was faced with a choice. Either radically readjust the way he was doing life or keep the life that he knew and just eliminate the problem. I love the Miroslav Wolf quote on the front of your bullets. And Cain was confronted with God's measure of what truly matters and what is truly great. Since he could not change the measure and refused to change himself, that's the, that's the tragic statement. Refused to change himself. He excluded both God and Abel from his life. Who do you want to be? If you're 18, if you're 88, what do you want to be remembered for? Who do you want... Who do you want to be? A man after God's own heart? Secondly, we see a theme here in chapter 4 that showed up last week and it shows up again in this passage. God comes to the characters in this story and he comes asking questions. He comes, as I, I called him last week, a wonderful counselor. We could say he comes as a wonderful questioner. He invites people through his questions to enter into the process of self-diagnosis 
So question number one in verse six. Oh, this is a question for you. Why are you so angry? That, my friends, is a million-dollar question. Why are you so angry? Best conversation I ever had in my life was, I, was, I think I was a freshman in, in seminary. I'm sitting in the seminary cafeteria, having a, sitting down, having lunch with a guy who, I think he was getting his MDiv and his master's in uh, family therapy, his MFT degree. So he's kind of dual pastor, counselor type guy. And somehow he got, got me talking, because that's what counselors try to do. Get you talking, and I, I don't know. I, my mom had died just... I don't know, it was either a few months before or a year before. And I got to talking about my mom. Maybe he asked me a question. I can't remember exactly. But um, he said, he basically said to me in the middle of the conversation, why are you so angry? And what do you think I said in reply? No, I'm not angry. He said, yeah, oh, yeah, you are. Why are you so angry? It takes a lot of energy and time to dig down in any given situation to dig down to the real root of why I am so angry. And you know, if you would, if we could ask ourselves that question and have the energy to dig, don't you think it would do us a whole lot of good? <laughs> yeah, it would. Why are you so angry? And then the second question God asks is, why is your face downcast? Or in other words, why are you depressed? Isn't that cool? God ends up naming the two emotions that we struggle with the most. Anger and depression. (laughs) God names the feelings. He says, here is what's going on. Let's look at this. Let's explore this. Let's dig a little deeper. But he doesn't stop there. Like, this is not just a client-centered emotional therapy treatment. He doesn't merely deal with the emotions. Instead, he says, Look, Cain, it's not your brother's fault. And it's not, it's not your brother's fault you're depressed and you're angry. And it's not your mother's fault. And it's not my fault You have to take responsibility for your attitudes and actions. I mean, he really does put the onus back on the cane. You've got to take responsibility for you. You know, emotions are huge and you have to deal with emotions. But if all you do is client-centered emotional therapy, that doesn't change people. You have to help people come to the place where they're really willing to take responsibility for what they think and what they do. And they've got to see the problem is not with their brother, it's not with their boss, it's not with their wife, it's with their hearts. And you need to stop blaming everybody else and start taking a hard look at your own heart. Wonderful counselors do both. They deal, they help us with all that emotional stuff, but they also challenge our thinking and they challenge our will. Look at this remarkable image, verse 7, that God uses next to help Cain understand his condition. Uh, God is a God who speaks in metaketos. He does. He doesn't say a lot of things straight up. Well, he says a lot of things. And some of them he says straight up. 
But he also speaks to us through a lot of word pictures. And look what he uses here in in verse 7. He says, uh, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you. I will never understand why parents dress up their little four-year-olds in a zebra outfit to take them uh, for a day at the zoo. Do you know where this is going? Uh, you know, they look really cute, the three or four-year-old dressed in, uh, as zebras. But for some reason, some parents think this is a really cool idea. We'll get out the phone and videotape it. We'll take the little child to the lion exhibit or the tiger exhibit, and we'll stand him in front of the the plane, the glass right there, and we'll turn little Johnny or Susie around and have them wave for the camera. And what's happening in the background? Yeah, the, the lion spots the wildebeest, spots the little zebra. And have you ever watched those on YouTube? The, the, there's cases where the lion, you know, crawls up, creeps, and just jumps and thunk. He actually hits the glass. And parents think this is the greatest thing in the world, and you know, it gets a million hits on YouTube. No, it's a predatory animal. Why would you want to joke about feeding your child to it? (laughs) You know how lions and leopards and tigers strike? They always separate the weakest from the rest of the herd, and then they run them around, they chase them, throughout through the bush until they're totally exhausted until those little baby deer or wildebeests are basically exhausted and dead on their feet and they wait they don't go immediately they just wait and let darkness set in and then the animal you know it starts to um it's no longer tense. It starts to let its, its muscles uh, release. And it's under the cover of darkness. They pounce. What God is telling Cain, what God is telling all of us, is that it's not a little kitten we're dealing with. It's a killer. It's, its desire is to have you. It is crouching in the shadows. It doesn't want to be seen by you. It wants you to underestimate it. It wants to catch you when you are unaware. It wants to consume you. And you must rule over it, or it will rule over you. Verse 7 is one of those verses that are really good to memorize. If, you, if you've been or are in a battle, uh, if you're in the midst of temptation— Memorize verse 7 and repeat it to you. When you see your eyes, they want to wander and start staring in the middle of lecture at someone who's a, a member of the opposite sex. When you start to plot in your mind of what you can, the way you can cheat, the way you can lie uh, on Tuesday when this new, when you tell yourself verse 7 that sin is crouching at your door and it, it wants to, it desires to have you. I must rule over it and not allow it to consume me. Verse 9. God asks one more question. He comes to Cain after he has killed Abel. He's not done asking questions. Even after Cain has killed Abel, 
he, he's still asking questions. And, and here's the famous question in verse 9. Where is your brother? God knows where the brother is. Right? God never asks a question because he's in need of information. God knows where the brother is. What is he doing? He's giving Cain one last opportunity to repent. It's almost as if, like, if Cain can just repent, then there's still hope for him. God hasn't given up on this man. He's still coming. He, uh, where is your brother? It's, he, he's supposed to just break down at that moment in, in, in tears over his sin. And instead, he says the most horrible thing in his reply. He says, am I my brother's babysitter? Who do you think, uh, what do you think? I'm supposed to keep tabs on that guy? Am I my brother's keeper? That's, the, that's about the most cold-hearted thing that a human being could ever say. And it's clear by those words that he has been entirely devoured and consumed. Sin has consumed him completely. And that's the thing, friends. If you give sin control, it will seek to control you. If you give it power, you will become powerless against it. You've got to, you've got to take decisive action. And Tim Keller uses the illustration that if you, if you go into your oncologist and the guy says, you've got stage three cancer, you've got a cancerous tumor growing inside your lung right now, and you're like, okay, I'll, I'll get around to that eventually. <laughs> Nobody ever says that, do they? Not when they have stage three or stage four. You've, you've got to deal with it relentlessly. You've got to do something about it. You've got to fight. Let's finish by considering the final question that God asks in this passage. Or it, No, I'm sorry. He doesn't ask this question. I'm asking this question. The question is, why is the blood of Abel crying out to God from the ground? This is a statement or a phrase that gets repeated a number of times later on through the rest of the Bible. The blood of the innocent crying out. What is the blood of the innocent crying out for? It's, it's crying out for justice. It's crying out to God. It's kind of interesting that um, the, the blood of innocently slain the, those who have suffered great injustice, they, it's like the world instinctively knows that God is a righteous judge. He's a thousand percent holy, and it's right to call out to him to rectify the situation. Um, and so the blood of, of victims know who to cry out to. They cry out to God. They cry out for judgment. And maybe the most surprising part of the whole passage is how God rectifies and judges this murder. Like, what would you expect God to do to Cain, the murderer? He would say he's going to be put to death, right? Only a few chapters later, in Genesis is a nine or so, that becomes the punishment for murder. The death sentence, capital punishment. Someone who murders a human being will themselves be put to death. Here, God doesn't, he, he judges Cain, yes, but he also spares Cain. Cain says, they're going to kill me out there. You, you can't let, let me uh, go. They're going to they're kill me once they find me. And God puts a sign on Cain and says, No, they will not. I will protect you. Do you see? 
Do you see what's happening? God's concern for the justice for the innocent is matched by only one other thing. His care for the murderer. His care for the unrepentant murderer. Cain maintains that someone will take revenge against him. So God provides a mark, which is a pledge of safe conduct. It is mercy shown to even the most hardened, unrepentant man. You say, how can God be that merciful to somebody who won't even acknowledge that they just murdered their brother? I have to think the reason is because God is, is setting the stage for the mercy that he will show to sinners in his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews writes. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, he says that uh, Christ's blood was shed to bring us, the unrighteous, the ones deserving death, to bring us near. The blood of Christ is the blood that speaks, quote, a better word than the blood of Abel. You hear what that means? When Abel's blood cries out from the ground, it cries out rightly for justice. When Christ's blood flows down from the cross, it cries out mercy and justice. Both are fulfilled. In verse 23, Lamech is the first sociopath. He's the first polygamist. He's also... No, I guess Cain would be the first sociopath. Lamech is the second sociopath. And he boasts in verse 23 that if, if somebody wounds him, if even a kid, if a kid scratches him, he says, I will be revenged. He says, literally, I'll take his head off. Seven was the number, number of perfection. Therefore, to say, I will be avenged 77 times means that I will never forgive I will never give up my vengeance. And when the disciples asked Jesus Christ, how many times should I forgive my brother after he has sinned against me? Seven times? <laughs> and he says, 70 times, seven times, which is it's kind of a 77-ish, isn't it? That's what the Father has shown us in Christ. Like Abel, he was murdered by his brothers, and in this, this strange way, that is how God purchased salvation for all of mankind. Spoiler alert, if you have not read East of Eden and you don't want to know how the book ends, then put your fingers in your ear for just a second here. Um, the father, Adam, suffers a stroke once he hears that his son, Aaron, uh, has died on the, the uh, fields of World War I and the battlefields. And the, the, uh, Caleb is standing before him, pleading to his father for, for forgiveness and to be accepted by his father. Um, and the father, earlier in the story, the father would not even hug this boy. So cold and distant was their relationship. He would not even hug him. And here it is at the end of the story. On his deathbed, he lays his hand upon his son's head and gives him his blessing, setting him free from the guilt, the tremendous, overwhelming guilt of killing your own brother. I think Steinbeck makes several mistakes in the book East of Eden. But this he gets right. Mercy triumphs over 
judgment. If you're a Christian, you're about to take the bread and the cup. What I want you to do this morning is survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. I want you to survey it. I want you to consider the depth and and the height and the width and the breadth of the love of God that is shown to even the worst of sinners. If I mean the the people who know themselves, everybody who knows themselves says raises their hand, I am the worst of sinners. I want you to survey that. And if you just if you feel wiped out by guilt this morning, if you are just underneath a tsunami of guilt for whatever reason. Now I'm not a big fan of the whole forgive yourself narrative. You just got to grow up and forgive yourself. But but look, if uh if you keep like heaping more and more guilt guilt onto your own shoulders, castigating yourself, shaming yourself, I think what you're doing is is you're saying at the end of the day that your judgment and your wisdom is greater than God's. Cuz you are condemning a person whom God has justified. Who are you to do that? If he's forgiven you, who are you to condemn yourself? Cain said, my punishment is more than I can bear. And we say, my punishment is just. And Christ has taken it for me, for us. Thanks be to God for such a wonderful, merciful Savior.